Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to, hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. Our Cracked Rackets team is so excited to be down in Lexington this week for the Top Seed Open, a WTA international event, part of the WTA's return to sanctioned play here in the 2020 calendar and I know an international event is usually the lowest category of WTA event, but that is not the feel with this field. You've got players like Serena Williams, Venus Williams, uh, Arena Sabalenka, Joe Conta, Own Jabour, and then, of course, the American fleet, Amanda Nisimova, Cece Bellis, Katie McNally. You've also got young players like Leila Fernandez in qualifying, Caroline Dalahide here, Shelby Rogers, not a young name, but an established veteran. I mean, the field is stacked, and so it is going to be some exceptional play. Our Cracked Rackets team really excited to be along for the ride, and all of you listeners can follow along with us if you tune into the Tennis One app. I will be doing the play-by-play coverage on their CrowdView One platform. It will be myself and Luke Jensen today on Monday, but we're going to have a bunch of fun guests hopefully throughout the week. We've had a couple of difficulties that I will go into if you are a Patreon subscriber in our Patreon mailbag, Uh, of course. That is just for the Patreon subscribers, and it's a doozy of a story, but certainly we're hoping to get on site. I have been tested for COVID. Hopefully, that test will come back negative. They will let me on. We will be good to go. Uh, But of course, there are still so many other things going on right now in the professional tennis world, and we're all eagerly awaiting the start of the three-week competition in New York. We still aren't even sure which of our favorite tennis players we are going to see competing in the action. So many names already announced that they are just not comfortable returning to play. And of course, that's justified. We can completely understand their decision as tennis fans. But, you know, for, I would say, the majority of the field, I think we still have, you know, the majority of the top 128 players in the world going to be taking place in this U.S. Open, at least from a singles perspective. And we have so much to be excited about, so many different narratives heading into tennis's restart. Of course, it's our second major of the year, but we haven't seen tennis in five months, so we don't know exactly what to expect. A lot of speculation to be done. And that is why I brought on a fantastic guest to talk about all of these things, not just the tennis perspective of what we're going to see in New York, but also someone who can comment on how they're feeling about the safety and health uh, procedures being put in place, because he's going to be traveling to New York alongside of his student, J.J. Wolf. Of course, I am talking about a returning guest here at Cracked Rackets, head of the Cast Tennis Academy, former All-American for my beloved University of Michigan Wolverines. Dave Cass joins the show today to talk about everything we are about to see in New York, the feasibility of the bubble. You know, he is someone, again, because he is heading on site with JJ. Uh, there are a lot of regulations, a lot of guidelines to follow. And so, uh, you know, he talks about how comfortable he is with all the regulations and guidelines being placed. The fact that the USTA has to run a tight, strict ship, is that going to, you know, how that's going to influence the sort of play we see, what he expects and how how he expects players to respond to those guidelines, its impact on the tennis. It's a really fun conversation. And of course, we've been having a lot of fun here on our Great Shot podcast with our DraftKings Ace of the Day segment. But, you know, this GSP is also a platform to talk about uh, subjects, not just the immediate focus, right? For the day-to-day stuff, you check out the mini breaks. When we're talking to players about big picture stuff, it's a cracked interview, but there are a lot of big picture things confronting tennis, and so felt like a perfect Great Shot podcast, the perfect time to bring on a guest like Dave Cass, so that is what we did. Of course, the reason we were able to have these conversations day in, day out here on the Great Shot podcast is because of the support we get from our friends at DraftKings, and if you listen to our GSP Ace of the Day, you know uh, there is 
is a lot of action to be had in the professional tennis world. It's one of the few sports when it's rocking and rolling where there are matches taking place 24-7, 365 days a year across the globe. We also know here at Cracked Rackets that our fans are the most well-informed, the best educated tennis fans in the business. Well, thanks to our friends at DraftKings, we can now take advantage of that fact, get in on the action ourselves by going to DraftKings.com. Here's how it works. You're going to create your DraftKings Sportsbook account and make a deposit. From there, DraftKings will match your first deposit at 20% up to $500. You're also going to make your first bet, and DraftKings is going to match that with a risk-free first bet up to $500. Can you imagine that, risking $500 of your not-your-own-dollars you hit there? Now you've got a solid base for everything you want to do on DraftKings within the tennis world. That just sounds like a win, folks, and you can take advantage of this offer by going to dkng.co slash great shot to play. That's dkng.co slash great shot. Deposit bonus is in DK dollars, which have no cash value and must be used on DraftKings. Offer not valid for users physically located in New Hampshire. You must be in New Jersey, Indiana, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, or Iowa only, and 21 years or older. Eligibility restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, or 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. And a reminder to get in on all of the action, dkng.co slash great shot to play. All right, with that being said, let's get to my conversation about this impending three-week bubble in New York with the one and only Dave Cass. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast once again is the head of the Cast Tennis Academy, a former All-American at my beloved University of Michigan, and of course, a returning guest here on our Cracked Rackets podcast, Dave Cass. Hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Uh, Thanks for doing great. How are you doing, Alex? Uh, No complaints. Another day in paradise, which I think is the same answer I've given for the past five months. And so it really is. You know, I get to watch tennis all day. I get to talk about it. I'd be doing that anyway. So for me, it really is another day in paradise. I know you got a little vacation squeezed in, if my memory serves me correctly. How are you feeling after recharging the batteries? Uh, I'm feeling great. Uh, We got away for about a week. Uh, That was the first time since COVID started and uh, family um, took a little break and uh, we're back um, feeling good. And excited for everything coming up if you had to guess in the past i'm going to say be generous i'm you know i know you graduated in 92 that means you're right around the 50 club uh how many weeks do you think in and you can do it in months in years have you spent not on a tennis court over the past 40 years uh well you forget i took a pretty large break um so after i stopped playing uh professionally so um i i I would say the last 15 years other than 10 years break there i probably every every week every month for sure on the court so yeah no i my former coach guy you know by the name of ed nagel used to always say thanksgiving christmas easter that's about it for me he's like other than that i am on the court feeding balls and doing my thing and it, i was like that honestly makes sense it also helps explain why you know you refuse to coach me anymore because you're just done coaching you're 25 years burnt out but anyways that's a me problem uh, that is not the reason we wanted to have you back on the show evidently your coaching is going quite well because news all of us tennis fans learned recently Uh, One of your students, J.J. Wolf, rewarded a wild card into the U.S. Open, and I don't think that's going to surprise anyone who's been a close follower of American tennis, particularly over these past, what, 24 months, J.J.'s rise, you know, a dominant junior year at college, he uh, followed that up with immense amounts of success early on in his pro career. Did it surprise you at all to hear J.J. got the wild card? I'm just curious your reaction to that and, you know, the work you guys have put in at Cast Tennis Academy over the past five months? 
Um, well, you don't want to take anything for granted, so uh, we certainly didn't expect it. But um, on the other hand, you know, we were hopeful. Uh, he was the top-ranked American that was not in the main draw in his own ranking, uh, and being, you know, only 21 and obviously having a lot of success winning four challengers, um, you know, we thought he was uh, a good candidate. So we're excited to hear the news. And uh, he, he also uh, was, received a wild card in the qualifying of the Cincinnati event. So um, he'll be playing in both of those tournaments here coming up. Is it crazy that it feels like he was snubbed with that qualifying wild card? Because you know if the event was actually in Mason, he would have gotten that main draw WC. Um, yeah, I don't want to um, comment on that <laughs> one, but uh, we, we were happy uh, to receive any chance to play in that tournament, and the guys who got the wild cards were certainly deserving, so it's hard to hard to argue that um, you know he should have got one. But being a local, like you said, uh, if the tournament was in Mason, um, things probably would have been different. Yeah, no, and it's great for him to get that qualifying wild card, particularly given how few and far between uh, the playing opportunities will be for players ranked outside the top 100. We really don't know what exactly the Challenger Tour is going to look like, and we have a couple of topics we want to hit today uh, a lot in relating to that three-week bubble we're about to see go on in New York. But I'm curious, and I I know, again, a lot of this would be JJ's decision, and I apologize for making you speak for him, but in terms of how you would approach... uh, this upcoming, you know, eight-week stretch from a scheduling perspective, had there not been a qualifying wild card or, you know, main draw wild card made available for JJ, do you think you guys would have made the decision to head over to Europe, you know, get the mandatory quarantine in and try to play a couple of challengers there just to get some match play in during 2020? Um, yeah, I think probably so. In fact, um, having those conversations right now with uh, Mikhail Torpegard, who you know, uh, that, that works with us. And, you know, unfortunately, um, he being from Denmark, you know, was not really a candidate for wild cards here in the U.S. And his uh, options are limited now in the U.S. with Orlando challengers being canceled. So, yeah, we're talking about what to do, um, assuming the French Open goes forward. Uh, he'll be in the qualifying on the 21st of September. And so the question is, when do you go over there and try and get some matches and some challengers in Europe? And, and a big part of that is uh, that you hit on is the quarantine. I mean, if, if he's going to have to quarantine for 14 days when he gets there to play the challengers, um, then that, that will uh, make it pretty tough to, to do. Um, obviously, they're working on uh, eliminating the quarantine requirement for the players for the French Open. And so if, it, if it's limited, if that, if that uh, waiver is, is uh, only in place for the French Open, I think it'll make it tough for anyone living and training in America to go over early. I'm on Delta right now. Cheap flights available. I can book that for you. Just give me the green light through the end of this podcast. Um, But no, you know, you bring up an interesting topic because, of course, there are far greater considerations than professional tennis going into the travel restrictions we see in place around the globe right now. But, you know, from a former player now coaching professional players perspective, what are your thoughts on the mandating of the quarantine? Do you expect that to be waived? Is that, you know, from a player and coaching perspective, is it frustrating or do you think that's just something players have to live with given what's going on? Well, I mean, I think in the world of tennis um, and just logistically and, and training wise, it, it makes it almost impossible if players would have to quarantine for 14 days and not practice when they get to a tournament or a new country. Um, so I think had that not been waived for the players coming to New York, um, I, I think you'd have a much different uh, field or no tournament at all. Um, and the same probably for the French Open. So I, I think that it's it's necessary to eliminate the quarantine or at least the 14-day quarantine uh, if you're going to have top players um, traveling abroad and going to some of these big tournaments. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's unreasonable to have that as a requirement. Um, but for pro tennis, it, it makes it logistically um, unlikely uh, if, if you can't get waivers for that. And, you know, I mean, I think you could look at the fact that like for New York, you, you show up at the airport and they drive you to the hotel and you get tested before you go in the hotel and you quarantine until your test results come back. And, you know, in theory, if everyone gets there and everyone tests negative and they keep testing you, um, you know, I, I think, you know, maybe eliminating the quarantine for, for these tournaments is, is appropriate. 
Yeah, well, that gets back to the lack of coordination amongst all of these competing entities in professional tennis. And it's an old concept, right? It, it became more prominent given that in times of a global pandemic, you would hope the organizational structures in place step up. But certainly, you know, the fact that the USTA, the French Tennis Federation, aren't coordinating their testing, communicating amongst one another, saying, hey, we're testing this guy on seventh or on September 1st. We're handing him off to you September 2nd to test. Know that on September 1st, tested negative and it's like that seems like something you could facilitate with an email like that seems like there's a portal that could be created where you have a login account and you check oh Schwartzman clear yeah he's clear to come to the tournament site we'll test him again and we'll send him on his way I I agree with you that just seems like there are logistical challenges that can be overcome and for some reason professional tennis just isn't there yet despite having five months to prepare Uh, and that gets us again to wondering how the USTA is going to prepare how they have you know they have their plans out and we want to talk about that for this three-week bubble in New York but speaking of having a plan I know you guys over at Cast Tennis Academy have more than just a plan you've begun to execute that plan uh, obviously you are expanding your academy you're bringing on new students you also over these past months as you mentioned have had the chance to continue to work with players such as Mikhail Torpegard, JJ Wolf obviously we had Katrina Scott on the podcast and I texted you immediately after that saying whatever stock I can invest in her please sell it to me I'm all in on Katrina Scott but you know with all of that being said tell our listeners what's going on at Cast Tennis Academy well we've uh, we've had a good summer and we've had a few um, few more professional players um, coming here to train quite a bit so it's been great for the guys and um, really raised the level of uh, intensity and, and training uh, a couple guys in particular Tennis Sandgren and Alex Kovacevic have been here uh, for quite some time and um, you know, working in with the guys. And we also started um, working with some junior players locally. Um, and I think the big news that's uh, exciting for us is we are moving into our own facility on October 1st, uh, the current Ohio State indoor tennis facility. Uh, as they move out into their newly built facility on campus, uh, we're actually uh, moving into that building and going to expand uh, what we're doing and excited to be able to offer what we think will end up being a pretty unique uh, training environment and experience. So um, looking to add to the junior base, um, bringing in some players from around the Midwest and the country uh, over the next year or two, and also probably expand the uh, pro base of uh, players a little bit. So we're excited for what we're doing and, um, you know, it's going well so far. Yeah, and I'm fortunate enough to consider Ty Tucker a friend. I'm fortunate enough, I think, at this point to consider Dave Schilling a friend as well. I feel like it's pretty fitting that in the year that Michigan was about to stop the winning streak Ohio State had over them, <laughs> that a former Wolverine is moving into the Ohio State Varsity Tennis Center. That feels like po- it's poetic, isn't it? Uh, you know I'm not going to touch that one, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I had to I had to throw a bait line out there for I'm, you. I'm too close to the uh those guys to uh comment on that. Yeah, okay. Your lack of comment is a comment in itself, so I will take that as a victory, certainly. Um, yeah, no, that is so exciting to hear, and you know, I know uh, you know, Dalton's brother Presley, a high-level junior going to Northwestern, had the chance to go train there. I appreciate the fact that you didn't let Dalton get anywhere close to holding a tennis racket. You were like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen, DT. Uh, so, you know, but one of these days, I'm going to get up there, for, you know, at the very least, come chat around. Maybe you'll let me on the court. You're not going to like the forehand and uh, it's still a work in progress. But I think you're going to be... I think you're going to be surprised because there's a little bit more athleticism than this voice would convey. Anyways, uh, yeah, we can move on from that topic. Really cool to hear uh, everything going on at Cast Tennis Academy. And actually, for our listeners who may want to learn more, the website is up and running, rocking and rolling. It, it is. If uh, you just go to Cast Tennis uh, website, um, there's some information and um, a way to contact us. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And we, again, really looking forward to seeing just the progress all of these players have made because I feel like when you have a JJ, you have a Sandgren, you have a Torp, just all of these players pushing one another, uh, the level of competition certainly must have been uh, pretty impressive in practice. Yes, it's um, getting getting better each week. And, uh, you know, we're doing some match days each week, um, trying to simulate real match uh you know, environments and um, the best we can. And it's, uh, the guys are getting excited for the tournaments coming up. So I think just finally having um, some, some visibility on, on real tournaments uh, coming up has, has motivated everybody as well. 
are they all going to look like Tennis Sandgren? Because I don't think that guy has an ounce of fat on him anymore. Yeah, he's in great shape. And uh, I will say the guys and girls uh, have, have hit the gym hard. Uh, we have a phenomenal strength and conditioning coach that helps everyone. And um, they, they've had a great four or five months. And everyone's way stronger and way fitter than when, when COVID started. So we're uh, excited to see how that pays off. Yeah, no, I, I don't think JJ's legs can get any bigger, um, but certainly it's going to be fun to see him back out there competing. And again, a bunch of these players have access into the Western and Southern now qualifying draws with the wild cards they receive. So we're going to get to see them compete uh, pretty soon. But, you know, that gets us again to what we want to talk about today, which is what we're going to see when this play transpires in New York. And we're still a couple of weeks away, so there really still is a chance. I think at this point, you know, the signals are pretty clear. The U.S. STA, the U.S. Open, everyone involved in organizing the event are going to do whatever possible to put it on. They're not going to cancel it until the day before when they, unless they're absolutely forced to. Uh, so it does seem like we are going to see players in New York. And of course, there are already notable players who will be missing. No Federer, no Nadal, no Barty, no Halep, no Wawrinka. You know, there are other examples as well. But certainly, the majority of the top 100 will be playing at this event. And I guess the place I want to start, you talk about the way JJ Tennis has have been training, and you know I've gotten the chance to travel to a couple of exhibitions, and I just think the modern game requires you now as a tennis player to be thinking about your game, to be thinking about your training 365 days a year. That gets to the question of what should the level of play, uh, what level of play should we expect as tennis fans in New York? And if Palermo is any preview, what we saw on the WTA tour this week, I think it's safe to say certainly the first week, first week and a half, maybe week two, we start to see players get a little bit sore. But if anything, coach, I think this past five months, and you're looking for the positives, no one wanted these past five months to happen. But they may have offered, particularly players at the top of the game where training resources are more abundant to them, a, you know, a three-month really training block that would never otherwise exist in a professional player's schedule because that time on the calendar just isn't there usually. And so I think the level of play we're going to see is going to be you know, the same quality we saw left off at the beginning of the year, if not even better. What do you think about that topic? Do you think the majority of players will have spent these past you know, five months responsibly focusing on training, focusing on improving their tennis? Yeah, I do. I think the majority have. Um, I think people have gone about it different ways um, in terms of on court, off court, and when they got started, how serious they got, you know, by which dates, etc. But I, I agree with you. I think the level of play is going to be high. Um, I think you could look at it a few different ways. The uh, older guys, as you mentioned, um, get to, you know, maybe take some time off the travel, heal the body up, some of the old nagging injuries, um, and just really get mentally and physically in a little better uh, spot than they typically are in, especially at an older age. Um, I know a lot of the older guys, at least the ones we we know and talk to, played a little less tennis during this period, um, just because I think they felt like they were really trying to save the body and, and get back feeling as good as possible. Um, and I think they probably feel like their games are more mature and less to really work on in terms of changes or modifications. Um, so those guys should be feeling pretty good. Um, and I think the young guys, a um, little differently, uh, went after it harder on the court and worked on things that they needed to to uh, fill some of the gaps and holes in their game, or you know, work on some different tactical changes. And so I think you know those guys are going to come out uh, roaring as well. So I I expect um, I expect the level to be very high. Kind of off of a comment I made earlier. I think the modern game, whether it be the pressures you receive from media, from you know social media, just the fact that you're going to be ridiculed if you show up to a match out of shape, i.e. Marcus Willis all of those years ago, he brings out the Coca-Cola, he brings out the candy bar, it's still a running gig on tennis Twitter, but you know, for so many of these players, especially because of how physical the modern game is, you, are, you have to be at the peak of your performance, you have to be in tip-top shape, particularly with a grand slam coming up for the men in, you know, three out of five sets. If you're out of shape, you're going to be exposed pretty quickly. Um, but 
I just feel like to play tennis in 2020, you just have to be as physically fit as possible at all times throughout the calendar. And so I just don't think there are going to be exceptions, of course, and there's been some videos that prove otherwise. But I feel as though 99% of these players will have been in the gym, will have been on the court, will not have been, you know, parting away or gouging themselves in food, whatever it may be. Is that a fair assessment? Do you think in 2020 that just the modern game requires these top pros to be in shape 365 days a year? Yeah, I think the majority uh, are and, and take that very seriously. And, um, you know, I think there wasn't a lot to do the first few months of COVID for a lot of players. Sure. And, um, you know, most of the people have access to, you know, their own gyms or, you know, places where they were able to get in the in, in, get some fitness in. So, I think everyone's probably done a lot of fitness. I am a little concerned about when we get to three out of five and, you know, match after match after match as that tournament goes on, that, that we we see some potential withdrawals in the middle of matches, you know, because I, I you can't re- it's really hard to simulate in practice no matter what you do or in the fitness uh, room uh, that that kind of stress on your body and, and mentally and physically. So. Um, I do worry is that we could see more um, withdrawals than normal mid-match um, in New York uh, or, you know, at the U.S. Open when it gets to three out of five. But that's that's my only concern. I think guys are going to be fit. But again, you know, it's just hard to hard to be fit for multiple three out of five set matches, tough ones when you haven't been playing a lot of tournaments. Can I offer you a slight counterpoint? Yeah. So this event in New York is fanless. And the event in Palermo isn't comparable because it's just, I suppose, they allowed fans in the stadium. Even though it was minimal, they still had fans there. And so there was an energy from the crowd, and these players could feel it in the biggest moments, particularly with so many Italian players being in the later stages of the tournament, the Italian crowd cheering for the Italian players. That's not going to be the case in New York. In New York, it's going to be empty stadiums. It's just going to be, you know, tournament uh, personnel as well as your player personnel, and that's it in the crowd. And they're playing in an empty stadium, and this probably applies more to, you know, the people playing on the, the stadium courts, I suppose. But it's going to be empty on the grounds. It's going to be, you know, there's going to be an eeriness, certainly, that will probably cause a dearth of energy compared to what you usually feel when you're competing in an event like the U.S. Open. You know, I guess the flip side to that is I was at these exhibition events, a deuce point or whatever it may be felt as real then as it always does. But I don't know, Will, the fact that there isn't a crowd, the fact that these events aren't being played under normal circumstances, that's going to have some sort of effect on the players you know, mental, just the way they focus in the match. And, you know, there's whether it's an adrenaline rush, eventually that transfers over to what you're capable of physically. You know, I, I, I guess my question to you there is the lack of fans, that's going to make a difference, right? I think it will, um, especially in the cases of the bigger name players who are used to playing in front of those huge stadiums all the time. But I think your point, uh, you know, kind of matches up with my comment about more player withdraws because I, I think a lot of times that crowd you, you keep playing and you push yourself past the point you really think you can because of that crowd and so without the crowd you know I'm not sure that happens so I think it's going to be a totally different uh, environment but like you said the exhibition tournaments when there weren't any fans and I was at some uh, still felt still pretty real and pretty intense uh, around the court were you a fan of the exhibitions throughout these past five months Yeah, definitely. I mean, they were great for my players and I think for all the players that got to participate. I mean, without those, I think it really would have been a a long five months of of practice and training and not really able to break it up with with, uh, match-like events. So I think they were extremely uh, useful and needed. Yeah, no, it was delightful. I think world team tennis in particular, uh, it kind of woke everyone back up just to see that many players congregated in one location, safely, of course, with rapid testing in place. Um, it, it just felt like professional tennis had come back. And I guess that gets to the feasibility of this event as well, because certainly uh, if if we are seeing our top players, they all seem to be in shape. We can expect a high level of play. But uh, another component is, this, is can we expect any play? Because 
if you know one player tests positive, they're exposed to another player, it trickles out throughout, and all of a sudden the U.S. Open is canceled. Or even if it's only one player, but it's a fourth round match, and that player has to withdraw from the tournament, and then you know because that player withdraws from the tournament, it's oh well, is this U.S. Open compromised? I guess my question is to you, and we can start to get into some of the specifics of the safety and health guidelines being put in place. What are your thoughts on the bubble in New York? As currently constructed, do you expect it to be successful? I do expect it to be successful. I, I mean, I will say um, that the USTA, uh, from my vantage point, has has really done amazing things to pull this off. I mean, the, the amount of effort and, and groups they've pulled together uh, with the medical side and the international side, um, you know, politically, all of it, to pull this off is, is a miracle. And you know, I think that it's been at least to date shown that if tournaments and sports um, create these bubbles responsibly, that you can you can have success. I mean, you mentioned World Team Tennis. Um, I thought they did an outstanding job. I thought the product was great, and I thought the fact they kept everyone safe and um, had all the testing and and kept everyone in the bubble um, shows that it can be done. And so, you know, hats off to Carlos and his group for what I think they pulled off and. Um, I have some friends involved uh, with some NBA teams who are they're currently in the bubble down there and um, they, they say that it's going very well and the testing um, and everything is, is really responsible and everyone's taking it serious. So um, I think those types of events and sports have a great chance for success. Um, U.S. Open is following suit, so I expect it um, to be successful. But I will say this, I mean, with the testing, Alex, and you know, I'm no medical expert, but it, these tests, it, it, it's starting to feel like, you know, hard to know which ones are reliable. I mean, the governor here in Ohio tested positive one day and then the next day now he's negative three days in a row. So, I mean, you know, anything can happen in terms of someone getting a negative test. I just would hate to see that happen, um, you know, ha- having a, a false positive or something like that that, that then created all the, all the trickle down you described. No, certainly it would. It's. I mean, you have to accept that there's going to be an element of chaos, right? Because certainly just to try and put on any sort of event in the midst of a global pandemic, there are going to be factors that are outside of your control. That being said, you start to get into some of the guidelines, some of the penalties that will be enforced, some of the testing and you know the strictness in place. Originally, the USTA planned to rent out a couple of hotels, make those the player hotels, You know, not exactly what the NBA is doing. And it also, I, I feel like it's always worth repeating. Tennis doesn't have NBA money. Tennis can't say, hey, Disney, we would like a third of your complex. Is that cool? And then Disney says, yeah, for $125 million, that's cool. And the NBA is like, please, you had us at 130 Like, 125 that's nothing. Like, we'll throw in the extra five just in case. Um, and tennis can't do that. But the U.S. Open can do a lot. And so initially when when that had come on, they said, okay, we're going to keep all the players in one location. We're going to provide them entertainment throughout that. Again, NBA light sort of feel. That was very encouraging. That's no longer the case. It's now people do have the option for private residency. Of course, if they do that, I think they have to have paid security out of their own pocket. And then the USDA has to be able to be in constant contact with that security uh, as part of the regulations. It's also if a player is found violating the bubble, if a member of the player's team are found violating the bubble, uh, the player is fined. They're kicked out of the event. And I believe in the case of a player's team member, that person is banned from being credentialed at the 2021. U.S. Open as well. And again, World Team Tennis is the example we have to keep turning to because for now, it seemed like it was you know pulled off very successfully. And the only reason I say for now is because really until two weeks pass is when you know for certain. Uh, but as you mentioned, a huge shout out as always to Carlos Silva and his team. But I guess... You know, we saw it with World Team Tennis. Danielle Collins violated the bubble. She was dismissed for the rest of the season. It caused a little one-day storm, and then everyone was kind of like, yeah, that made sense. The allures of New York City, of Manhattan, are far superior, with all due respect, to the allures of suburbs of West Virginia. Like, there's just more to do in New York. There are more temptations. There are more reasons to go out and about. I guess, A— 
just because based off of what we've seen from all these players during this past time period, I think inevitably there will be some sort of conflict where a player or a team member does something wrong. If that happens, do you expect the USTA to just immediately, you know, summary judgment, they're kicked out of the event? Uh, Do you expect there to be some leniency? And I guess, again, you know, B, given the appeals of New York, I just, I feel like it's going to be a little bit more difficult to try and contain this sort of bubble. Yeah, I mean, I've studied it pretty closely because I'm planning on going. And I mean, they, they really have it um, tightened up pretty, pretty well. And I, I, don't, I don't really expect um, anybody to try and really break out of that bubble. I mean, certainly players and their teams who are in the tournament still, um, there's so much to lose by obviously getting penalized. Um, and, and, you know, I guess potentially af- after players lose and stay, you know, an extra night or two, um, you know, maybe there's a risk there that, um, that, that they, you know, don't have as much to lose. So maybe they try and go out in New York city, but, um, I'm assuming, and, and, you know, the, I, from my understanding, Alex, is that, you know, 95% of the players are all staying in one hotel. The majority of the players and their teams are all at, um, one of the hotels and then some overflow at the other hotel. And I, I'm expecting there to be security at the doors and i mean you 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 can't go out so other than when you're getting on the tournament transportation bus so i'm not sure how um exactly the logistics are going to be but it seems like um it's going to be pretty pretty tight how great is this line athletes should not rent a property through other sources or through online room aggregators such as vrbo airbnb or any other publicly available source essentially if you are the alex gruskins of the world you're not playing the u.s open this year which again not a surprise but um i just love how specific they get that shows that they have thought all of these things out now Again, we saw this call. It was reported from Marsa earlier in the week. The top 20 players called. They said, hey, you know, if you don't waive the travel restrictions uh, from going from the U.S. Open to Europe for the French Open, we we might all boycott the U.S. Open. And I know they're still working on that. But, you know, that sort of decision-making, that sort of top 20 exclusion from everyone else groupthink is sort of indicative of why there will never be a players' union, because the interests for players ranked highly are always going to so greatly differ from the players ranked at the bottom of the game that it's just going to be always difficult to find common ground. But I guess given all of these regulations that are put in place, given everything that they are trying to do, do you think players, and we've seen some opt out, but do you think some will continue to opt out in the weeks leading up to this event? Yeah, I think so. I think we'll see a handful of them. Um, I mean, obviously, if they don't get that figured out with um, going when they go back to Europe in the quarantine, then you'll see you'll see more. But I'm expecting that to get worked out. And uh, um, but yeah, I think there'll be you know a handful of players that. Uh, pull out closer to the tournament. Um, But I I still think the majority of the players like we've seen are going to be in New York. If one player tests positive, do you think they stop the event? I know the guidelines right now say no, but I'm just curious what you think. I don't think so. I mean, that hasn't seemed to be the case um, around the sporting world, um, you know, with with one-offs like that. So I I don't understand it any better than you do in terms of why not. But, um, you know, that's, that's how it looks. Yeah, that's fair. I guess it would just be different, you know, for basketball. So many people showed up a couple weeks in advance and they had positive tests, but play hadn't really started. If you test positive in the midst of the U.S. Open, there's not like, oh, it's okay. You can come back and play again in two weeks. You're just out of the event. And I suppose there's a more a more immediate effect if that sort of thing happens. But yeah, it, it will certainly be fascinating to follow, I guess, the final question I have, because there are a lot of guidelines and we could go through all of them. I think it's really cool that Delta Doubles players are going to be made available as the first singles alternates. I think, like, how great would it be to see like Jamie Murray ends up having to play first round in singles and he draws Djokovic? Like that, that would be must watch TV for me certainly. But I guess my last question to you: Given all the guidelines in place, given the fact that you're traveling there yourself, how confident are you in this bubble in New York? I know I sort of asked this earlier, but as of right now, do you think the U.S. Open, the Western Southern event, will be able to run successfully? I do. I'm expecting it to, um, you know, there's no guarantees and, and there can, you know, be some positive tests that derail things, but I, the way they're doing it and the efforts they've gone to, um, I, I think there's a high probability of success. So I'm, uh, certainly, uh, rooting for them. They've, they've, uh, worked very hard and spent a ton of money to, uh, make it happen. 
Yeah. All right. Well, one fun question on this bubble concept. Who in the bubble of the players at the hotel do you expect to be the pickiest eater? <laughs> uh, it's a good one. Um, hmm. I feel like to be that large, Matteo Berrettini's like, sorry, I have to eat a full cow each and every day. Yeah, like, he it's probably, just, he it's probably eats anything in sight, but I was going to say maybe yeah. like Rublev, you know, he might be. Ooh. Yeah, that's Look, good, Looks like a picky eater to me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I think he nailed it there. You know, if Nicholas Jerry was in there, he'd say, sorry, I like my beef to have a little bit more hormones in them, but he is not on site. Was that too soon? too soon is that okay yeah whatever we'll roll with it um but yeah no it's uh it's just gonna be to see all these players trapped is the wrong word but you know congregated in one location it's gonna be really fun and so you expect some texts from me being like come on who first food fight happened who started it or i'll be like hey i'm hearing this what is that so i'm sure you're gonna have some fun in there hear some cool tales and of course we are all so excited because we get to see our favorite professionals back on the courts and you know 2020 is always going to be remembered as the year COVID of COVID-19, of course. But in terms of where we are at on both professional tours, it's a time of transition. It's already really begun in the women's game. Players like Osaka, Bardi, uh, you know, uh, Bianca Andreescu, Sophia Kennan capturing grand slams. And we see so many players 25 and under already inside the top 30, top 20, top 10. But it feels like we're inching towards a very similar place in the men's game as well. You know, uh, Pas and Zverev have won the last two year-end finals. We saw Berrettini make a semifinal at a slam. We saw Zverev make a semifinal at a slam. Pas has done it. Obviously, Medvedev made that final at the U.S. Open last year and went on that incredible run. We're at a really interesting spot. And so I guess uh, to sort of start big picture when you look at tennis's restart in my opinion, I think it favors the young players because you're 23, 24, 25 years old. It doesn't matter if you have a little bit of break. Your body is still good to go, and you can sort of pick things up right where you left them off. I guess let's start there. Do you expect the young players to perform particularly well as we see uh, tennis restart? Uh, I do. I think that's fair to say. I I expect the younger guys to make a little bigger push than they have uh, to date. Yeah. Are there any players in particular? I guess we we can start to get into a bunch of them specifically, but, you you know, again, you you sort of look at the trend lines and where we are at. Is that fair? Do you feel like we're in the midst of a generational shift might be too strong of the word uh, of a word, but certainly this generation seems to be coming on on both sides of the tour? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. And um, I think on the the men's side, it's really coming. And uh, over the next, you know, two, three years, I think you'll see kind of a full transition. So um, it'll be exciting to see what these guys do at the open here and, you know, coming up because there's some big, big players, big name guys and with big games. So it's going to be going to be exciting. Yeah, and you want to start, let's start with the favorites in terms of the young guys, and let's start with the men. Uh, I said young guys, obviously, so let's start with the men. Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas seem to have separate themselves, uh, separated themselves from the rest of the group. You want to throw maybe Berrettini in there, maybe you really liked how Rublev left off, and you want to say, well, he was injured, but he was actually on this huge run, it made the fourth round of the U.S. Open, then lost an entire season due to injury, and now he's come back as strong as he was before. Anyways, you now know, Dave, the arguments I have with myself. Um, but, you know, those three guys have really separated themselves from everyone else. And you look at this field, no Federer, no Nadal. Yes, Djokovic is in it. Yes, he's undefeated in 2020. But my question to you, what do you think is more likely? That Novak Djokovic wins the 2020 U.S. Open or that one of Zverev, Medvedev, and Tsitsipas do? I think I'll take the field. Okay. You'll take everyone else? Yep. I think I'll take everyone else. Do do I still win that bet if Djokovic doesn't play? Well, so, okay, let's go. Do you think Djokovic isn't going to play? I feel like that's its own question. Yeah, I feel like there's a chance that uh, he won't. So um, I think with that in mind, I'd take the field. Um, Even if he he shows, I'd say it's pretty pretty even bet there because uh he's he's going to be a huge favorite but um a lot of guys a lot of guys trying to take him out so um definitely some possibilities 
Yeah, and it's not a hot take, by the way. Djokovic, the top-ranked player in the draw, then Dominic team, then the next three are Medvedev, Tsitsipas, and Zverev. So I guess if you're to look at those three guys, and they've all played to varying degrees during this uh, exhibition period, but if you were to have one guy of those three, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, who you think is most ready, I suppose, to compete and win the 2020 U.S. Open, who are you picking and why? Um, I think I'd take uh, Tsitsipas. Um, you know, he's he's been playing a lot. He's been playing well. Um, I think he's probably the best kind of fighter consistently. Um, and, you know, he's got a great game. So I think uh, he'd probably be my pick out of that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good pick. And you talk about Stefano Tsitsipas again. He's won a year-end tour finals. He's made a semifinals of a hard court major. He did it in Australia in 2019. And there is just a swagger about him, this sort of confidence where he seems to step on the court now expecting to win. But I don't know, when you look at his game, you know, he's, I I think when I would describe him, if you were to say, what is the thing that Stefano Tsitsipas does best? I would say it's that he plays to win. It's that under crunch time situations, he'll play big. He'll go for his winners. He'll move forward. He'll just, he's always on his front foot. He never seems to be the one scattering, playing defense unless he absolutely has to. Is that the thing that impresses you most about his game? I mean, you hit it. I think he's just an incredible competitor. I mean, he's got a big serve. He's got a great forehand and all that. But I think he's a great competitor, and he, he, he's always there to compete every point. Uh, a little bit like Nadal in that sense, where I think the other guys, um, you know, his age that are in the top 10 are just a little bit more uh, up and down uh, mentally there. Yeah, that's fair. Although you talk about competitor, I mean, Daniil Medvedev doesn't do anything pretty. So it's clearly that he can compete as hard as he does. It's a big part of his success. And, you know, he's coming off of a final there from last year. So he's got that institutional know-how as well. I don't know. If I was to give you my pick, this is not going to be a surprise to Crack Rackets fans. Do I want to go with Zverev, even though I know... That's just my heart leading the way. I'm such an Alex Zverev fan. I don't know your thoughts, Dave, but I've never seen someone that tall move that fluidly around the court and strike the ball that beautifully. It's like if Marin Chilch's game was attractive, it would be Alex Zverev. That would be my comparison. And it's just, you know, the serve is such a glaring issue. And that's very, very clear. And you have to wonder at a certain point how much of it is mental. And if it's persisted over three years, given every other skill set he's shown... Uh, the answer is very, it's, a, it's a very much mental. And I don't even need to list his accomplishments at this point because everyone knows how successful he has been. You know, clearly of this generation, the most accomplished player thus far. But if I'm a tennis coach, and again, this gets this can, please, you are a tennis coach, a high-level one too. I'm just a pseudo-tennis mind, so please correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like if a player is going to have an area that they are weakest at, the thing I want it to be is the serve. Because serving is the one thing, just repetition after repetition after repetition after repetition. You could argue you could do that with anything. But I think serving more than any other part of the game is something that can be fixed through repetition. That's why I continue to maintain, of all of these young players, Zverev has the highest upside. What are your thoughts on that argument? Um. Uh, you know, you'll be surprised. I don't disagree. Um, I, I, I do think um, that that you can fix serves with repetition. Um, you know, I'm not sure mechanically if he's, um, you know, kind of doing that. And that's one of his goals. But I think it's definitely something he, he can do. And I, and I think his issues are, have, like you said, are, have been more mental. I mean, the last time I saw him play live, he I think he had 23 double faults. Um, so literally, literally last year at the open. So, um, or one of those matches. So, I mean, I, I think it's more mental for him, his, you know, and, and, um, if he wants to clean up the technique, I think he can help himself there as well. Yeah, no, completely agree with you there. And again, uh, all three of these guys alongside of Dominic Team, who's a little bit older, but you could argue might even be a category ahead of those three in terms of contender status. Uh, those are the five guys you would put on your list. Who are the five guys most likely to win? At least that's who I would put. I'd put Djokovic, Team, those three in any order you want after those top two, and I would feel pretty good about it. So that's one group of young guys. Uh, that's the guys. Let's stick with the guys first, and then we'll get to the women. You know, out of that next batch there are a couple you could think that might pop Berrettini semi-finalist Rublev was playing so well when 
things ended. Hatchinov, the veteran of the group, which is funny to say about a 24-year-old. Denis Shapovalov, FAA, Alex Dimenauer, Hubie Hercots. Of those guys, you know, the guys we've seen do it a little bit more frequently than some a little bit younger than them, but still on the rise. You could even throw Riley Opelka in that group. Who is the guy you think is most likely to maybe come out of nowhere to make a run to a semifinal or a final at this event? Out of that group, I would say uh, my picks would be uh, Shapovalov and Opelka. Make the case. Well, Shapovalov is just, um, he's just such an athlete, got so much game, um, loves the big stage and um, was playing really, really well, uh, you know, last year. And, and um, I, I, just, I, I don't know for sure what he's been doing in the off season here. So, or in the COVID season. Um, so I, I can't say for sure, but I, he would, he would be at the top of that list in general for me, um, ready to break out, you know, lefty and just huge game, huge shot maker and uh, really athletic and also very, very competitive. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, in Opelka, in Shapovalov, and I'm a huge fan of both as well. You talk about two guys who, in terms of ball striking, in terms of power, they're top tier, plus, 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 uh, you know, uh, ball strikers in terms of the power that they can produce. It, it, this gets so I, I told you beforehand I had a question I was really looking forward to asking you and it's a it's something we might have even talked about before it's something I've talked about pretty frequently of late on these podcasts is that in the men's game in particular I just think it's getting to a point where you're going to have to be and there are going to be exceptions of course but the majority of players at the top of the game are going to be six foot three to six foot six they're going to have cannons of serve they're going to be more fluid than we've ever seen in tennis athletes at that size and that's what you're going to have to be to compete at the men's game just given the demands of the modern game you look at guys like a guy like a Shapovalov or a guy like a JJ and the way they can snap the ball it's clearly the elite of the elite go listen to JJ's forehand go listen to that pop you're like whoa I've never heard that before you know same thing with a guy like FAA as well and then you have this other class of tennis players, you know, six foot two or a little bit smaller, guys like Miomir Kesmanovic or Alex Dimenauer. When you watch them play, and no, maybe the ball doesn't pop off their strings the way it does some other guys, but you just say, that's a tennis player. You know, that's a guy who's, I see his floor as a player, and there's no way he's going to be worse than top 50 for the next 10 years. I guess from your perspective, what's the player you're trying to coach? The guy with just, you know, the raw, the, the ball striker or the a guy like the Dimenauer or the Kesmenovich? I guess, what, what's the type of player you prefer? Well, I mean, I think just in general, the size uh, is an advantage. So if you're six, three, or four and you're long and you can move like a lot of these guys can now, um, you know, the, the court coverage uh, advantage and the, the serving angle advantage and just longer limbs creating, you know, more power in general, um, you know, you'd, you'd err on that side if you're picking. Um, but, you know, the other guys, I mean, if you look at the top 10 or 15, I mean, you got a lot of guys who aren't physically, um, you know, dominant, like a Djokovic or even a team or Gaffan, Fognini. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of guys in that six foot six one range who aren't aren't that physically intimidating. Yeah, I just feel like we're going to get to a place where there are going to be like 14 different versions of Hubie Hercots in the top 50. And it's just like, oh yeah, they're tall, hit big serves, move well around the courts, can do a bunch of different things, and they can just assert their will. You know, like a Hatchinov, a Hercots, a Berrettini to an extent. It's just this It's this big, again, good moving mm-hmm. you know, tennis player that there's just clearly a space for them to succeed in the modern men's game. And I, I do see that trend emerging. But yeah, in terms of, because again, I, I think a guy like a Kesmenovic who, uh, you know, I, I guess and you're a little bit biased here, but you look at Amir Mir Kesmenovic, I just feel like his floor as a tennis player is so incredibly high. And so like you compare him to someone like JJ where you say, well, you know, when once JJ gets that forehand really rocking and rolling, once he gets even more physically developed, like there the upside for JJ may be a little bit higher, but I don't know, it's just a tough debate when you ask who's going to have more accomplishments in 10 years. It's it's really tough. Yeah, I mean, was that a question about those two in particular? That, no, that I don't, first of all, I don't even think that ended up being a question. That just ended up being me pontificating a little bit on Kesmenovic. But yeah, it, it's just I I don't know. I guess why well, it's because if you you can't teach the ball striking, you can teach a ball striker to be calm. 
Yeah, I mean, Kuzmanovic, I mean, he, he, I think he's an unbelievable ball striker and um, really solid player. He, I, I don't think for the highest level he'd be considered to have any real weapons. Um, yeah. and, and so I think it's hard to go all the way uh, without those weapons. So um, not sure what his ceiling is, but, um, you know, he's obviously already really good and will continue to get better. But, yeah, I, I would bet on some of the guys that have more weapons, um, I think, than guys like him or a Casper Rude, you know, another young guy that's really solid. Um, you know, so that's just, you know, for my money. No, you nailed it. Or like a Haomi Munar, who, same thing, just a grinder on the clay, but just is nothing's going to come easy for them. And in the modern game, you need to be able to make things easy for yourself. Otherwise, you're just going to be out there for two and a half hours. So, yeah, it's it's a really interesting field. And then, I mean, you look at the women's. I think the women's game is in as good of a place as it could possibly be as we head into this 2020s decade because not only do you have the tail end of Serena and Venus, not only do you have players like Halep and, you know, Kiki Burke, Burton's Pliskova, who are a generation older than that. But then you also have, you know, on top of the Kennan Andrescu, Coco Goff, all these amazing young talents. You have people like, uh, you know, Sabalenka and Kontave and Vekic and Sakari, who are already, uh, you know, who are 24 years old, but certainly haven't hit their primes yet either. And they've all accomplished so much on tour as well. So I guess just flip over here to the women's side. When I look at this U.S. Open, and I make my list, and I was trying to do that in preparation for this. I legitimately started out with forty names, where I was like, "Well, less than 40. I think it was like, th- I think it was like twenty-eight when I took out withdrawals. That I was like, "Yeah, I, I legitimately think one of these twenty-eight players, if they're playing well, could win the U.S. Open." Am I crazy, or is there that much parity in women's tennis right now? Well, there's a ton of parity, um, and I, I don't know the women's game as well as the men's today, um, but I, I know there's. A lot of those girls you mentioned um, murder the ball and uh, are are really, really good. So I think um, there's been more parity to date. So I I think uh, we should expect that at the Open as well. Mm-hmm. It's also crazy how Sophia Kennan go because I, I think she had a really, really good 2019, and then she wins the Australian Open. Really nice performance for her world team tennis. No Barty, no Halep. Does Kennan enter the U.S. Open for the women's side as the favorite, or is it still Serena's always to lose? Oh, I, I don't know. I think uh, Kennan's right up there with her, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, there's a number of girls who are probably pretty equally uh, – a position to win that i mean serena it's just hard to say it's hard to bet against her but um you know going all the way is is not going to be easy uh for her so uh, kenan kenan uh she talk about a competitor um i mean she's she's got that so i wouldn't bet against her mm-hmm. i want to throw one more name at you go back to the men's side and Maybe this is just me trying to create controversy where none exists. But if I was in Team J.J. Wolf, I would be absolutely furious that Brandon Nakashima stole my shine. I mean, here I am, again, J.J. Wolf put it together, maybe the best college tennis season outside of Stevie Johnson of the decade. I win two challengers to start off my season. And now all anyone can talk about over these past five months is, oh, how great is Brandon Nakashima? He's going to be a top 100 pro. And I say that mockingly because I am also a huge fan of Brandon Nakashima but you know I I do feel like he stole JJ Shine a little bit regardless of that your thoughts on his rise and just again between JJ Brandon obviously Tommy Francis Taylor and Riley on American men's tennis as we head into this new decade well there's a lot of good young Americans right now Um, I mean Brandon is playing unbelievable I saw him play uh, some of the matches at world team tennis and um, you know, saw him in college a year or so ago and, and how much better he's gotten. And, um, yeah, he, he's definitely the talk of the town. And, uh, you know, from, from our camp, we're, uh, we're okay with that. Um, like, you know, we don't need a lot of the focus here on, uh, JJ or any of the players. So, um, I think Brandon and JJ are probably the two hottest young kind of Americans, uh, on the way up right now. Um, and I think they both got plenty of hype and, um, you know, I think they're both capable of, of beating a lot of players, uh, you know, already in New York uh, coming up and, and going forward. So they both have very high uh, ceilings, in my opinion. And, and they're friends, so I don't think JJ is too worked up about uh, Brandon getting, uh, getting all the uh, hype. Is that how you felt compared to Agassi in 86? <laughs> well, I used to, you know, I told you, you know, every time I'd beat him, all the agents would go talk to him. So 
Um, <laughs> I, uh, I should have figured it out earlier. <laughs> yeah, you, you, should, you just got to hire Brandon's PR guy is clearly the thing. Um, no, I mean, again, I, to your point, I completely echo that. It, I think American men's tennis, not as healthy of a place as American women's tennis, where you have Anisimova, Kennan, and Goff, and CeCe Ballas, all these names where you're just like, oh my God, the potential is endless. But we're definitely in a really good place heading into the decade. I guess I'll throw in one more bonus. I think of all the young American men on tour and you know, I'm sure you're going to throw JJ in there too, but whatever. I think Riley Opelka is the guy. I think if any of these young players are going to win a slam, it's going to be him just because he has something you can't teach, which is size and just overwhelming athleticism. True or false statement that I just made. Is that fair? Yeah, I think he's the easiest one to make that bet on just based on his size and what he's already done and his serve and just, you know, the potential if he can stay healthy and keep getting, keep getting more uh, agile. Yeah, it's just always shocking to me how good his ground strokes are, you know, how fundamentally sound they are given his size. Yeah, really good. I mean, for him, I think just kind of continuing to try and move better and be more efficient out there. Um, You know, he's got a great coach in Jay and uh, his team. So, I I mean, I, I expect great things out of him as well. Mm-hmm. And I think his serve can get even better too, which is crazy. Did you ever play Jay back in the juniors? I didn't, but Jay was my brother's age, and they they went at it quite a bit uh, when they were young. And um, but I know Jay pretty well, and uh, I really respect uh, the job he does as a coach. I will never forget Jay uh, driving by as Westoff and I are walking in Miami, and uh, it's ninety degrees out. We're sweating, or you know, we're schwitzing uh, just like crazy, and we see this car drive by, and it's clearly Jay Berger. You can see the silhouette, and we're just sitting. We're you know, we have our backpacks on. It's eight thirty in the morning. We're already sweating as we walk to the site. Jay Berger waves at us, says, "Hey guys." We're like, "Oh." I look at Westoff. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Jay Berger just waved to us. And he was like, how do you know? I'm like, well, no one else is here. <laughs> um, and so that that's my Jay Berger experience. Very nice man. And yes, I agree. You look at Riley Opelka, already won an ATP title in 2020, certainly trending in the direction we would like. And, you know, certainly I think it's good to say uh, for American tennis fans, thankfully, Cast Tennis Academy is trending in the right direction as well, uh, given, you know, you guys are planning to expand, given all the work and clearly this success jj tennis torp uh, everyone there are having katrina and more uh one last time for our listeners where can they learn more about cast tennis academy uh if they just google cast tennis uh, they'll get to the website and um if you know can contact us um you know for any more information and um you know we'd be happy to happy to uh, talk to anybody who's interested yeah, absolutely. Well, then my last question for you. Give me preliminary, still very, very, very early, so we'll call this your way too early, David Cass selection, U.S. Open men's and women's champions in singles. Hmm. Can't um, say J.J. and Katrina. I'll go uh, I'll go with, uh, I'll stick with Titsy Pass on the men's side. And, I like that. Uh, um, I'm just going to go with uh, Osaka on the ladies' side. I like both of those picks. I'm, I'm a fan. Tsitsipas, obviously, we talked about. Osaka, hitting partner, Carousel, frequent guest here on our Cracked Rackets podcast. So I feel like that's a win for us as well. And it is always a win for both us and our Cracked Rackets fans whenever we get to hear from you, Dave. So, of course, you know there's always a spot available for you on this podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, obviously, hope you're staying safe and healthy. And, you know, good luck to you and the entire team in New York. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thanks for what you guys are doing, and um, always fun talking to you. Yeah, of course. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Cass Tennis Academy's former University of Michigan All-American Dave Cass. And again, if you want to learn more about his academy, and you know, we here at Crack Rackets have a bit of an inside scoop, but I mean, if, you know, talents like J.J. Wolf, Tennis Sandgren, um, Mikhail Torpegard, Katrina Scott, that's not enough to sell you. Go check out the website. Uh, you know, we really believe in Dave. I know he's has got some really cool things planned for uh, this expanded academy, and I think it's something all of you tennis fans 
will be interested in. So be sure to check that out. You know, we plan to have Dave on many, many, many more times on this podcast over, you know, the next couple of months and years. So, of course, so grateful for him whenever he's willing to share that with us. And it was a great conversation. So hopefully all of you listeners enjoyed it as much as I did uh, recording it. But of course, as I mentioned at the top, we are live here in Nicholasville for now. Uh, Again, some things to clear up. You want to hear that full story? I will encourage you. Go check out our Patreon. uh, Become a subscriber so you can hear our Patreon mailbag episodes. We have a lot of fun. I get to be even more unfiltered than usual. And yes, folks, there is another gear I can take it to. Believe me, when I know Super Producer Daniel Westhoff isn't going to edit what I say, I, I take it to the max. I I think I even talked politics on our Patreon episode on Saturday, and I think I apologized to Dalton after I did it within the podcast, but I know he doesn't listen to the pods that closely, so I think I got away with it. But, you know, again, if you want to hear a little off-the-cuff action, become a Patreon subscriber. Uh, but, of course, we are because we are live, if you want to follow along here in Lexington with us, we do encourage you, go download the Tennis One app myself. Gonna be, or I'm going to be, I don't know why I refer to myself as myself. I am going to be on the play-by-play play call all week long on the Tennis One app, uh, assuming things go as planned. Uh, you know, today I'm going to be joined by Luke Jensen, but we've got some other cool guests planned for later in the week. And of course, we're going to be trying to have as many conversations as we ha- can with the players on site as we all try to figure out exactly what New York will look like when it starts. And again, that start date inching closer and closer to us. Uh, but we've had so many great conversations here. So of course, I will ask you as always, like, rate, subscribe, review, this podcast, the Mini Break podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, and the Inside Out podcast, as well as our YouTube channel where you can see so many of the cool things we are doing on video as well. Shout out, as always, to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out. Again, it's very easy for me to talk into a microphone, much more difficult to make it sound coherent. That's what they do, so shout out to them, as always. Also, a huge shout out to our friends at DraftKings. If you want to get in on the action dkng.co slash great shot is the place to go hey a little bit of a pun there and also of course we hope you're all following along playing with us on our gsp ace of the days uh segments we haven't been as successful as we anticipated yet uh, but we're certainly having a lot of fun for now and so again if that's something you are interested in you want to venture into that lane of you know putting a little at stake when you're watching these tennis matches we've got a platform for you be sure to listen to those ace of the day segments. And if you've missed any of our content, you know where you can find it on our website, crackedrackets.com, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. You need those immediate updates. We're at Cracked Rackets. You want to slide into my DMs. Such a lovely place to be. Feel free to reach out at Great Shot Pod. Uh, but with that being said, for our wonderful guests, Dave Cass, our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at DraftKings, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks? Hey, great shot, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone.